0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 135. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I am recording this episode on December 11th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without intentional presentism. We have twice teased the plundering time of Maryland. The first was back in April 2023 in the episode That Time Maryland and Virginia Went to War, a useful prerequisite for this episode. And again, more obliquely in our recent episode, Opa Kankanaa's Last Stand. That Time Maryland and Virginia Went to War tells the story of the early conflict between the vengeful Virginian trader Thomas Claiborne who had built a settlement for trading fur on Kent Island in the northern Chesapeake. Kent Island was smack in the middle of Lord Baltimore's Maryland proprietary grant. And when Baltimore's brother Leonard Calvert arrived with the Ark and the Dove in 1634, he and Claiborne came into conflict when Claiborne would not subject himself to Calvert's authority. After some failed diplomacy and the first naval skirmishes in the Chesapeake, Calvert ejected Claiborne from Kent Island. Claiborne would spend the rest of his life nurturing his grudge against the Calverts. We shall return to the T's in Opecankanae's last stand, for those of you who do not remember the moment. But first, let's review the broader situation. One of the things I've learned in doing this podcast is that early colonial Maryland was more interesting than I'd been led to believe. Early Maryland is mentioned only in passing, if at all, in the surveys of American history, usually with reference to its Catholicism or early policy of religious freedom among Christians. The question is why? Surely one of the reasons is that early Maryland remained very thinly populated by Europeans even in the mid-1640s, with perhaps 600 English settlers in 1644. By that time, there were more than 20,000 Europeans in New England and more than 10,000 in Virginia. Even New Netherland had a couple of thousand Europeans scattered over its relatively large territory. Maryland was, in fact, different from these other colonies, both in its organization and in the background of its leading citizens. It was a proprietary colony owned literally by Cecil Calvert, the Lord Baltimore, under a royal charter granted by Charles I. Unlike the small freehold farms and merchant businesses in New England, with a post-corporate private plantations in the Crown Colony of Virginia... Cecil Calvert had envisioned a neo-medieval system of manners, with large property owners farming both food and tobacco and using servants or soon enough fully enslaved people to do the physical work. Finally, the Calverts were Catholic, even if they had learned to get along well in England and welcome Protestants into their proprietary. Indeed, Protestants were the confessional majority in Maryland, even though most of the leaders of the colony, including the governor, Leonard Calvert, were Catholic. Religious pluralism had worked out in Maryland's first decade because the Calverts insisted that Protestants, whether traditional Anglicans or Puritans, would not face any disability in public life on account of their denomination. At this point, Maryland informally guaranteed religious toleration among followers of Jesus Christ and would eventually do so formally. It was not quite up to the standard of religious freedom set by Roger Williams in Rhode Island, but the village of St. Mary's City was more tolerant of theoretically heretical Christians than virtually anywhere else in the English world in the 17th century In some parts of the world even today. This episode is the first of two that tell the story of Maryland's plundering time, or how it was that the Calverts came within a whisker of losing their colony in the mid 1640s, just as Opechancanough was waging his final war in Virginia, Willem Kieft was fighting Indians all around Manhattan, and Roger Williams was securing his charter for Providence in Rhode Island. In addition to Claiborne's grudge, there are three other factors, all of which are at least passingly familiar to long standing and attentive listeners. First, in order of importance, or at least in my assessment of importance, was the First English Civil War between Parliament and Charles I, which had broken out in 1642. The war had all kinds of implications for the English settlements in North America. It disrupted trade between the colonies and the mother country, because neither the parliamentarians, based in London, nor the royalists, controlling the western port of Bristol, wanted the valuable furs and tobacco of North America to benefit the other side. As importantly, the two warring factions were highly, if imperfectly, correlated with confessional differences. Traditional Anglicans and, more quietly, Catholics tended to support the crown. Puritans and other Protestants tended to side with Parliament. Since both Maryland and Virginia had plenty of both, tensions ran high in both colonies. Opa had hoped to exploit these tensions in its final war of 1644, as we discussed a couple of episodes back. Second, war had broken out between Europeans and Indian nations from Virginia to New England. The Susquehannocks had gone to war with Maryland in 1642, perhaps goaded into it by Thomas Claiborne, and may have been in communication with Opecankano. The prosecution of that war had divided Maryland's leadership and stressed the economy of the small English population of Baltimore's colony. The costs of paying for that war would open up the usual resentments that always arise when the time comes to pay for a war. Finally, Lord Baltimore's vision of a neo-medieval manorial system in Maryland was breaking down. The easy availability of arable land made it difficult for the mostly Catholic gentry to maintain control over the mostly Protestant, ambitious middle class. Religion and economic differences were thereby muddled, and Maryland Protestants began to chafe under Catholic rule, religious tolerance notwithstanding. Most accounts of the plundering time are extremely abbreviated. The Wikipedia entry is uncharacteristically thin, much shorter than the entry even for Keefe's War, which is itself obscure. It gets short shrift even in books on Maryland history of the 17th century English colonies. One of the reasons is that there was no surviving contemporaneous narrative. Most of what we know about it had to be teased out of the depositions and correspondence arising in the subsequent litigation, which occurred in England after the fact. The result of that work is a book by Timothy Riordan, published by the Maryland Historical Society in 2004, The Plundering Time, Maryland in the English Civil War. Riordan is an anthropologist and archaeologist who is the chief archaeologist at St. Mary's City, the Jamestown of Maryland, which I visited back in April. Splitting the difference between Riordan's step-by-step reconstruction of the era and the scant summaries elsewhere has been the main challenge in writing the story at a level suitable for you, our devoted listeners. The protagonist of the story is a fellow named Richard Engel, a savvy trader and captain who became the most important commercial link between the few hundred settlers around St. Mary's City and England, and a regular visitor to the Virginia settlements. He was a devoted Protestant, a vocal parliamentarian, His ship was named the Reformation in case anybody was unclear on either point. But he was also quite practical insofar as he was more than willing to trade with royalists, whether the Anglicans of the James and York Rivers or the Catholics on St. Mary's. And still, he had not entirely mastered the important skill of anger management. The key players in the government of Maryland were Leonard Calvert, the governor and brother of the second Lord Baltimore, John Luger, a converted Catholic who served as the colony's secretary and attorney general, and is today known as the father of the Maryland Bar apparently considered a compliment, and Thomas Cornwallis. Cornwallis was also a Catholic, but he was, in Riordan's characterization, more modern than the other Catholic gentry. He was more interested in trade than in farming tobacco, not particularly interested in religious distinctions, and the only competent military leader in the colony. Last but not least, there was the antagonist of the story, Giles Brent, who arrived in 1638 with two spinster sisters, Margaret and Mary, of whom more in the future. Giles Brent was cantankerous and petty, and would reveal himself to be of dubious judgment. Leonard Calvert spoke for his brother, the Lord Proprietor, who was, in principle, the holder of vast powers in the charter bestowed upon him by Charles I. You all remember the Bishop of Durham clause discussion from last summer. Nevertheless, long-standing and attentive listeners know that Maryland had an assembly that presumed to act with authority. The Calverts were reasonably wise and restrained, and acted as though the rule of law applied to them, at least to a point. From time to time, factions would arise that would insist that the assembly had more power than the Calverts were willing to grant. The leaders of this slightly more democratic faction were various, but Brent and Cornwallis were typically in the mix. Finally, all the Catholic gentry of Maryland were royalists, with varying degrees of dedication. In this respect, they were of the same mind as the leadership of Virginia, which also tended to be royalist. Both Chesapeake colonies, however, had significant Protestant minorities that were much inclined to support Parliament in the now ongoing Civil War in England. We do not know a great deal about Richard Ingle before he enters the picture in 1643. Engel had sailed the Reformation out of London, the center of parliamentarian and Puritan power in England in November 1642, several months after the hot war had finally broken out between Charles I and Parliament. We also do not know exactly how big Reformation was, but Riordan estimates it to be between 180 and 240 tons, and armed with 12 guns of various sizes. This made it a typical London ship of the era, built for trading, but sufficiently armed to defend itself if need be, or even seize its own prizes of opportunity. Ingle sailed the northern route through the wintry North Atlantic and arrived at Virginia in February 1643. There we know Engle entertained the royalist Virginians Argall and Francis Yardley aboard ship. There were drinks... Francis, a bit in his cups, decided it would be entertaining to mock the roundhead parliamentarians, to which Ingall, no doubt also a sheet or two to the wind, denounced royalists as rattleheads. Riordan's description of the encounter is both entertaining and tells us something useful about Ingall Argall Yardley cautioned his brother to hold his tongue until they were ashore fearing that they were vulnerable on Ingall's ship. The young man did not listen, and the argument grew loud enough to be heard all over the ship. Ingall, in a discontented passion, left the cabin and went on deck. Not finished with the argument, Francis Yardley followed him above, and the argument began to get out of control. Ingle returned to his cabin, grabbed a pole axe and a cutlass, and came back on deck. Argo Yardley, who had also come on deck, saw Ingle, and came out of the roundhouse saying, what is the reason that you are armed here in harbor? It's not a usual thing. Ingle replied that he would walk his own ship as it pleased him. Yardley asked, who do you wait for? Do you wait for my brother? Ingle replied that he was not and probably added something else because Yardley, as commander of Accomac, arrested him in the name of the king. Ingle answered, If you had arrested me in the king and parliament's name, I would have obeyed it, for so it is now. With that, he drew his cutlass and thrust it at Yardley's chest, threatening but not striking him. Engel ordered all of the Virginians ashore and told his crew to weigh anchor for Maryland. The Yardleys and several others did go ashore. But 18 or more of the Virginians were caught unaware and got a free, if unasked for, trip to Maryland. Back to me. Say what you will about modern American politics, at least we don't typically have cutlasses at hand when we get into animated discussions. I do think it would be more entertaining, however, if partisans called each other such things as roundheads and rattleheads. And for those of you wondering the basis for attempting to arrest Engel, it was that he had denounced the king. At more or less any time and any place until very recently, that was treason. Suffice it to say that the standard for treason has changed. Ingle eventually dropped off the other Virginians at some inconvenient spot on the Chesapeake and proceeded to bounce around Maryland, bragging about having denounced the king in Virginia and gotten away with it. Royalist as the Maryland government was, there was no attempt, at this time, to arrest or otherwise admonish Ingle for his loud mouth. He was very important to them commercially, a lifeline of sorts and in any case, the Protestant majority of Maryland probably agreed with his sentiment, even if wishing he were more diplomatic about it. Anywho, Ingle knocked around Maryland for the better part of three months wheeling and dealing and litigating. As late as April 11, 1643, Leonard Calvert took Ingle's deposition. Engel had sued Margaret Brent, the sister of Giles, She was pretty litigious and would find herself in court on the regular. The litigiousness stems from Margaret's many ventures. She was the first American businesswoman who comes down to us as such, about which more in a future episode. I'll tease that now by saying that I, at least, would much rather hang out with Margaret Brent than Anne Hutchinson, but I'd also keep my lawyer close by. Along about mid-April 1643, both Richard Engel and Leonard Calvert sailed for England. We do not know whether Calvert sailed with Engle on Reformation, but the odds are good that he did. There just weren't that many ships calling on St. Mary's City. If they did travel together, the next question is where Engle would have dropped off Calvert in a ship called Reformation. Royalist ports would have been hostile to a Protestant ship, and it would not have been entirely safe for Calvert to disembark in London. So maybe they traveled separately, or Ingle dropped Calvert off at some small port where neither would be much noticed. We know why Ingle went back to England. He was a merchant trader. But we do not know why Calvert did. We do know that before his departure, he sold a good bit of his property to a Protestant named, wait for it, Nathaniel Pope. We also know that on his departure, he appointed Giles Brent, still up at Kent Island, as acting governor of the proprietary. This would turn out to be a fateful decision. Finally, we know that once back in England, Leonard managed to get married, father one child, and conceive a second all within 12 months. His new wife was one Anne Brent, who was related, by some means, historians argue over this, to Giles, Margaret, and Mary Brent. That summer and fall of 1643, Giles basically did no actual governing of Maryland. The functioning of the tiny government, which mostly involved court proceedings, seems to have ground to a halt. He did, however, respond to the rising pressure from the Susquehannocks, who were increasingly threatening and indeed raiding Maryland from their stronghold up the river that bears their name. It was at this time that Brent dispatched Cornwallis to launch the ultimately disastrous expedition that we recounted in the furry geopolitics of the eastern seaboard, 1630s to 1660s, a few weeks back. Brent also built a blockhouse on an island at the very top of the Chesapeake, which he optimistically named Fort Conquest. All of this cost money, which would need to be raised as taxes, and that would make many of the small freeholders, most of whom were Protestant, unhappy. Back in England, the Civil War was becoming desperate. Both sides were looking for money to fight the war, and both sought to prevent money from going to the other. On December 1, 1643, Parliament passed an act that authorized the seizing of ships found trading with ports hostile to Parliament. The law was complicated and required privateers acting under it to fill out all sorts of forms and present all sorts of documents, mostly so that subsequent lawsuits could be adjudicated and Parliament could audit the vig it collected. The main targets of the law were ships coming from Ireland to the continent, the goal being to motivate them to trade in London. But the tobacco ships sailing from the Chesapeake would also be bound. It created both risks and opportunities, as always abound in war. At the same time, the war was inflicting a lot of financial damage on Lord Baltimore and other Catholic gentry. He needed to get revenue. So he seems to have negotiated with Charles I to secure a commission for his brother, Leonard, to seize Protestant assets, the proceeds of which would be shared with the king. Now let's go to Timothy Riordan for the details. Quote, The commission would be granted at Oxford on January 26, 1644, and would give broad powers to Leonard Calvert for taking ships, cargoes, and debts, On sea or on land that belonged to residents of London or other ports, then in rebellion against the crown. Charles authorized Leonard Calvert to go to Virginia and, with the assistance of the governor, that would be Sir William Berkeley, a staunch royalist, seize any London ships, their cargoes, and anything belonging to them. Having taken a ship, Calvert could sell it, trade it away, or have the captain agree to pay a fine rather than lose the vessel. In addition, he could discharge or compound with any Virginian who owed a debt to a Londoner or other person from a port in rebellion. Any of the seized goods or cargoes that Calvert did not dispose of in the Chesapeake could be imported into England without customs duties, taxes, or other payments. Back to me. The Calverts were to split the profits after expenses with a crown 50-50. From their share, the Calverts were to pay Berkeley the equivalent in tobacco of 2,000 pounds sterling, which would cover two years of his annual salary. That saves the king money. Friendly reminder, the Virginians, with Thomas Claiborne in the lead, resented the Calverts, whom they regarded as squatting on land originally granted to the Virginia Company in 1606, never mind that the Virginia Company had been wiped out with the creation of the Crown Colony 20 years before. Calverts' commission from Charles I would, therefore, be incendiary, even for some of the Virginia Royalists. Ingall sailed back to Maryland in the late fall of 1643, arriving at St. Inigo's Creek just a couple of miles south of St. Mary's City. Suddenly, everything got really stupid. More or less on arrival, Reformation's bosun, one Thomas Green, sued Marylander William Hardig, a tailor, for a debt of some kind. Various other lawsuits ensued, with other crew members suing Harding and Harding hurling counteraccusations. The claims in these lawsuits were triflingly small, perhaps as little as 150 pounds of tobacco at stake. But Harding clearly hated Reformation and her crew. On January 18th, he appeared before acting Governor Brent and accused Richard Engel of treason, bringing up Engel's cranky bluster from the previous April— Cranky bluster that Leonard Calvert had wisely ignored. Harding detailed his complaints against Ingall, including that Ingall had said that King Charles was no king. Now back to Riordan Harding found Governor Brent a ready and willing listener. Brent's motives in this action can only be guessed, but the evidence suggests several possible political and personal reasons. Brent was clearly a royalist, just as Engle vigorously supported Parliament. Engle might have appeared as an easy target that could satisfy Brent's need to show support for the crown. It's also possible that although Leonard Calvert's commission to seize London ships was not granted until January 26, 1644, word of its drafting might have been sent over with a shipping of 1643. The governor also had several ongoing financial problems with Engel. In February 1643, Engel had sued Brent for 8,000 pounds of tobacco due him, and which Brent refused to pay. A month later, Ingall protested a bill of 16 pounds sterling that Margaret Brant had drawn on a London factor the year before. Neither of these issues had been settled in 1643, and they lingered to cloud relations between Engle and the Brents. By seizing Reformation, Brent could strike a blow against Parliament, remove the problem of the debts owed to Engle, and possibly even make a profit when the ship was brought to Bristol. Back to me. Brent ordered Ingle arrested. This was not a straightforward thing to do insofar as Reformation was the most powerful ship in the northern Chesapeake at the time. Brent and Harding hatched a comical plan to trick Engle into coming ashore. Brent invited Engle to dinner and arranged for Harding and Cornwallis, who was actually friendly with Engle, to grab him on land. Duly arrested, Engle was detained. The problem is, there was no jail in St. Mary's City or anywhere else in Maryland. So basically, Engel needed to be put under a round-the-clock guard. Meanwhile, most of the crew of Reformation were on shore, conducting their own business. So it was an easy matter for other Marylanders to seize the ship. They tried to induce the crew to sail it to Bristol, a royalist port. And Brent offered John Durford, Reformation's mate, double wages to take the ship back across the Atlantic. Durford agreed, but he was really playing for time. Meanwhile, Brent and his council gathered at Margaret Brent's house to work out the rest of the details. They drank beer. Ingle was brought before the council and the charges were read. Now let's go back to Riordan, quote, the session must have been a stormy one for each of the participants had a different recollection of what was agreed upon. James Neal later testified that he had asked Brent to release Ingel into his custody, but the governor had refused. Cornwallis then offered to be bound body for body for Engel, which was accepted. Brent apparently assumed that Cornwallis would take Engel to his house and keep him there until the trial. Cornwallis, on the other hand, thought Ingle had been given bail and could freely return to his ship. When the meeting ended, Ingle and the company of Cornwallis and Neal left the house. Outside, they met the sheriff, Edward Packer, who was ready to take Ingle back into custody. Secretary Luger, also leaving the meeting, assured Packer that the prisoner had been turned over to Cornwallis and was free to go with him. The three men, Cornwallis, Neal, and Packer, accompanied Engle to the Reformation, where Cornwallis told John Hampton, one of Brent's men, to return his rapier to the ship's gunner. He ordered the rest of the guard to return the seized weapons and told them to go every man to his rest. Contrary to most accounts of the incident, Cornwallis did not disperse the guard and set Engle free. Cornwallis knew that the charges would not stand up in court and fully expected Engel to stay in the area to answer them. He believed that the situation had sufficiently cooled that the night would be quiet. Cornwallis had no authority to send the guard away, and when he told them to rest, he meant on the ship. He intended to stay with Engel and was in the Reformation's great cabin with him when the ship was retaken. By this time, all of the crew had returned aboard but the atmosphere seemed relaxed. Most of the guard had gone below deck to sleep. Under the leadership of John Durford, Thomas Green, and Frederick Johnson, the crew suddenly overpowered the few guards who remained on deck, then lashed and nailed the hatches to trap the sleeping Marylanders below. Cornwallis and some others, they locked in the great cabin. The struggle was short, but violent. Several crew members were later indicted for beating, wounding, and abusing the guard. Except for those in the cabin, the Marylanders were put over the side and sent ashore. Ingle had his ship back, and he had hostages. Back to me. It should also be said that Ingle was not an even slightly happy camper. Ingle did not, however, just turn around and sail back to London. His ship wasn't full of tobacco, and if he were to return with an empty hold, he would lose a great deal of money on the voyage. Reformation would spend the next few months in the northern Chesapeake, trading and even grabbing boats and taking their weapons and anything of value. Needless to say, Brent lost his mind. He indicted Engel, fired the sheriff, fined Cornwallis a thousand pounds of tobacco, and opened investigations into all the various people who let Engel and the Reformation escape. Unfortunately, public opinion was not with Brent, not by a long shot. Engel had, for six years, been the only traitor to serve the small colony. They all knew him, and the Protestants who made up the majority mostly agreed with him. When Brent tried Ingel in absentia on three charges, various witnesses emerged to testify on Ingle's behalf. Perhaps he owed them money, and the jury returned the verdict. Ignoramus. I love that. Sadly, though, this was not an insult aimed at Brent, however much he deserved it. Rather, ignoramus was Latin, is Latin, for unknown to us, meaning that insufficient evidence had been presented to convict. Then, weirdly, all seemingly went back to normal. Within three weeks, now just mid-February, Brent at least pretended to let go of his grudge against Engel. During the spring of 1644, Engel was allowed to collect documented debts from both Brent and Luger. At some point, Ingle even transported Brent back to his plantation on Kent Island, and Brent even granted Ingle title to a small island stocked with hogs. Everybody seems to have agreed that Ingle was again in Maryland's good graces and restored as its principal merchant. By some point in March, Reformation had sailed for Virginia. As far as Ingle knew, he was in the clear. Not so... Almost as soon as its sails dropped below the horizon, Luger and Brent seized his assets in Maryland to be held until he returned to answer the charges against him. All the pleasantry had been a ruse. That same spring, relations between the Brents, Giles and Margaret, and Cornwallis collapsed into a bewildering morass of litigation. These guys sue each other more than any group of people I've ever heard of. Each accused the other of owing them money, and in the course of defending himself, Cornwallis accused the Brents of fraud in open court. That gave Brent the grounds to lock up Cornwallis, which was essentially a ploy to keep Cornwallis from traveling to England to appeal his side of the case. Cornwallis dropped his suit against the Brents in return for his release. On the 28th of March, 1644, Thomas Cornwallis sailed down the Chesapeake to join Engle, who would then take him back to England just a couple of weeks before Opa Kankanaw would unleash his last attack. This was, in Riordan's telling, a great loss for Maryland. Quote When Cornwallis sailed away in April 1644, Maryland's last hope of avoiding the plundering time was gone. Cornwallis' leadership would be keenly missed during the crisis. Had he been in Maryland in 1645 when Engel arrived, there might never have been an invasion or a rebellion. Relying on his friendship with Engle, he could have soothed over the minor incidents and misunderstandings that led to the conflagration. But Cornwallis was in England then and had his own problems. Back to me. As Reformation sailed away from Virginia with Cornwallis and Engel, the English Civil War spread for a moment to the James River. Two London ships were sailing along the James in search of trade with the plantations there. The planters, who were mostly loyalists, refused to trade with them. This would have resulted in a huge financial loss, for they would have wasted a trip across the Atlantic with the very high costs that entailed. To limit their losses, the London ships cooked up a scheme to seize a royalist ship from Bristol, then riding at anchor at blank point about eight miles up the river from Jamestown. Now let's go back to Riordan, quote, As the tide began to flow up the river on April 10, 1644, the pair approached the Bristolmen, giving no sign of their intentions. They glided into anchor on either side of their target, Then, without warning, raised the ensign of Parliament and let fly broadsides into the unsuspecting ship. The fusillade destroyed some of the rigging and resulted in several casualties, including a Virginia planter who had been on board to trade. Back to me. Amazingly, the Bristol ship was able to cut its cables and, with the help of the incoming tide, pulled its way into a nearby creek its shallow draft let it go where the Londoners could not. And the Bristol ship wasn't unarmed. In that narrow creek, it prevented the men from the London ships from pursuing in boats. The attackers gave up, sailed away. As long-standing and attentive listeners know from Opa Ken last stand, word of this attack soon reached the great chief. He saw his final opportunity and would spring his ambush. This is a great place to stop right now. When opa attacked, Leonard Calvert was still in England, now married and a father, and would leave Bristol with his commission to plunder supporters of Parliament in Virginia at the beginning of July 1644, just as Cornwallis and Ingle would arrive in London. We shall cover that and more in the next episode. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and following me on x twitter and the facebook page for the podcast until next time